listening to Ping, a new podcast by APNIC discussing all things related to measuring the internet. I'm your host, Robbie Mitchell. If you're new to our show and are wondering what this podcast is all about, each fortnight we chat with internet researchers and operators from around the world about the research they are doing and insights they've gained into their well-being of the internet. For those who've been listening, welcome back and thanks for the shares, feedback and reviews. And if you've subscribed, thanks for that too. Today I'm talking with Terry Sweetser, infamous internet veteran and networking and telco stalwart here in Australia with 30 plus years of experience across all levels. Those out of the region may know Terry from mailing lists as well as his presentations at Apricot and Apinic conferences. At the recent Apricot meeting, Terry presented on he and the Internet Society's Aftab Siddiqui's recent study into the status of RPKI in Australia and New Zealand among its government services and critical infrastructure. If you missed it, head over to the conference website to watch a recording or read the transcript after this show. We'll put a link in the show description. Terry, welcome to Ping. I'm very glad to join you. I've actually been looking forward to this since you invited me. That's always nice to hear at the start of a conversation. So we wanted to have you on the show to continue the RPKI discussions we've been featuring on the APNIC blog this past month, as well as with Job Snyder's recently on the show. For those who didn't catch your presentation at Apricot, can you give us a brief overview of the results and the methodology? I have an ongoing relationship with the Internet Society where we do these studies and we normally take routing data or routing metrics in some way and turn it into some real world insights. But this time around, what we were looking at, what would happen if we trace routed to popular websites and important websites around Australia and New Zealand from, first of all, address space which passed ROV, which had its RPKI tags all good. And then, of course, the other case was bad address space where the ROV was definitely invalid. In fact, intentionally invalid. Therefore, what we'd be looking for is not successfully connecting to those websites from that address space. So it gave us a very good compare and contrast. And to my disappointment, there are some very well-known networks out there which didn't discriminate. You'll see their AS numbers in the final report, so it's not, we're not going to do any naming or shaming today in, in the podcast. But essentially, yeah, there are some extremely good networks out there, like a hundred percent rejection rate for traffic, which would potentially be coming from an invalid source, which you think about as great security, and then some hits and misses. So depending on who the uh, network operator was, was you know your result and. Again, without naming anyone in particular, some of the bigger names like Cloudflare and Microsoft did very well in that regard. So that, that was very heartening. But yeah, but the methodology was really simple. We have two pieces of address space, one with ROV good, one with ROV bad, and we just trace route to triple W anything in the domain space and .au, .nz, and with our control group .pk, which is Pakistan. And it produced about two and a half million records in the database to look at. So it's a nice large sample. And we were particularly interested in .gov and .edu because part of the brief for the report is to look at critical infrastructure. And to our thinking, during COVID, .edu is critical infrastructure online. And of course, at any given day of the week, government websites, especially those governments like New South Wales who are starting to pivot to this digital first model, if their websites are offline or can be compromised or can be accessed by um, someone who is pretending to be someone else, you would consider that to be a bad outcome. And yeah, and we 
we got some really surprising results. Um, Cyber.gov.au was accessible from invalid ROV address space, and we found that quite interesting. The fact that the main place where you go to get advice about your cybersecurity from the Australian government is accessible from all the bad places, which we found, we found quite funny, actually. So that study is in the process now of being finally drafted, and ISOC will be putting that out in the next couple of months. Great. And will you be reaching out to some of these, let's say, culprits? They have already been contacted. One of the reasons the report's been sitting in the the background now for a couple of months is uh, we've given some of these networks some back-channel contact because obviously Internet Society has great contacts with many of these organisations. So to be fair, we wanted to give them a heads up because you don't don't want to embarrass people. This this is not a call-out or finger-pointing exercise. It's good experimental data and what we've found has shown us that there are practices with routing security, which we feel people should examine and fix in some cases. And as you said in your presentation, this isn't necessarily a shaming exercise, but more so an awareness one. Even though it's been a decade since RPKI was documented in RFC 6480, as we know with the saga that is IPv6, it takes time for people to take notice. So how does this study help to develop that awareness within the local industry? I think the, the main thing is by highlighting the critical infrastructure issue on top of all this, it may actually get the attention of people who are buying site access. Now, if you're running a, a website as a government department or you're running a website as a large university or a large college, you should now go back to your provider and say, well, hang on, how come you're not protecting me from invalid address space usage? Why am I possibly being exposed to a hole in security in that way? And that's one way of doing it. Quite often, if you, if you really want something to be driven in some of these big corporate ISPs and, and other small businesses, you need their customers to start telling them what they want. Because ultimately, if the customer wants it, the customer will pay for it. And that means it will get done. And that's probably an, an easier task than trying to promote it directly to the operators. Because like many other economic issues in the industry, unless someone's paying for it, it probably won't get done. That sums up the world we live in. Uh, I'd like to turn to the how now and discuss the data you collected. We've featured on this show several measurement researchers who've discussed the challenges of sourcing public data to study the health of the internet. And this was no different for you going by your comments in your presentation, specifically that public sources of data are not as good as they should be. Can you share with us the public sources of data that you used in this study? And what you mean by your comments? I have to basically source data from an, an ethical source. So if it's public, if it's been put out there for everyone to consume, that's, that's a good thing. So it can be Atlas Ripe data, uh, can be internet registry da- data, routing registry data from various places and so on. And this is good. Now, even um, good old MaxMine has, even though they're a commercial service, they have a public data set they just hand people to you. It's, it's like a taste of what you can get from them and so on. Unfortunately. Most of these databases have things in them which are just not true, okay? They don't reflect the actual reality on the ground. They don't necessarily have up-to-date country codes in them. You know, if address space is basically sold across boundaries of countries, you, you find that it could be a .au in January, but in February it's been sold somewhere else and it should no longer be in, in AU. So it doesn't necessarily get geocoded correctly. So there's always those subnets which are in transit so they never get geolocated correctly and then there's places like radb merit where you can put things into that database but nothing ever gets expunged or checked later on so it's full of 
archaic, completely incorrect entries. So that causes an issue in and of itself as well, because you not just have things which are technically missing, they're just not there. You just know what, don't know what's going on. There's things there that are completely untrue and absolutely no reflection on reality on the internet whatsoever. So that makes it great. It's public, but no, it's not exactly the best data integrity you could hope for. So how do you go about validating the data? Is it a case of comparing different data sets or do you have to do your own fact checking by going to the source? Yeah, you have to do your own research. You end up having to go through and find a second source or a third source of, of that and see what's going on. The best example I had in that database was the address space that was being used for the Queensland government portal. So that address space is not accessible outside of Australia. So no one, no one who runs a database for internet-related things outside of Australia even knows what that address space is because you can't ping it, can't access it, and so on. So it becomes this almost bizarre situation where if someone's not curating the data, say, in Brisbane, then they won't know what's going on there. So it was one of the, the first false flags that we had came up in the actual exercise, the idea that, hang on, the Queensland government portal's not ROV invalid. It's not wrong. It's actually quite right. According to my local BGP tables, this is absolutely fine. But someone over in Atlas has no idea what they are. There's another database has no idea what's going on. And it wasn't until I sat down and actually used some of my credits on Atlas to go, okay, let's just ping this from everywhere. So ran a huge ping and then, and then realized that, hang on, most of these aren't coming back. But it turns out they just have it firewalled off from non-Australian dress space. Simple as that. So it's what we call obscure security or security through obscurity. But again, they're still accessible by invalid address space anyway. So even though they're ROA, their end's fine. Our test site, when we tried to access the websites from, from Sydney with the invalid ROV space, worked every time, connected every time. So again, they might be filtering that traffic, but they still could have a bad actor down the road from them who could impersonate someone with a hijack in Brisbane and still get to them anyway. Yeah, it's all about layers, isn't it? Layers of security. Everyone can't hide behind a great firewall, and that's why RPKI has its place. Well, this is the thing. that The internet is the digital version of a world public square. Yeah, there's going to be dark corners, there's going to be streetlights out and so on. That's fair enough. But ultimately, the expectation is that anything that's got a public IP address should be able to send traffic to anywhere else that has a public IP address. What we want to make sure with RPKI is that all the ownership records at either end are good. And then after that, we've got transit providers, peering points, and so on, the glue in, in between all of that. But yeah, overall, having origin validation just means we're sort of like we're doing like an ownership check. Like you do a license check at the club. This one looks a bit too young. Let's see your driver's license, that sort of thing. It's required because you can see the growth of BGP hijacks and it's not so much the hijack event, but it's the reputational damage that can be the worst thing to come from it. Well, there's that, the fact that you've lost control of your own address space. I think that Facebook security incident was almost hilarious that their systems were knocked offline and they're the systems they used for their security access to their own data centers. So that is a major embarrassment that someone thought it was a good idea to have the front-facing part of their security online. And then look what happens when it's knocked offline. So yeah, again, there's probably for every possibility out there with a piece of address space, there's going to be N plus one ways of, of harming it. And this just takes the plus one or the plus two off the end of that equation each time. 
you'll probably ask me about all the other measures, but yeah, um, route origin is just a start. We have other measures we need to start on, yes. And I mean, this is only a very narrow focus in terms of the incompleteness or inconsistency of the data related to routing security and RPKI. So how can we improve this? Is it a case of we need to do more measurements locally all across the world? It may be that. It may be a case of more measurements or some way of auditing as well. Again, because no one's BGP table is the same as the next fellow's BGP table, my AES won't have the same BGP routing table as your AES will have as a BGP routing table. So those are differences. And it's probably something that as far as the network security and the routing security brief of any NOC or any network engineer is out there, this should be added to your task list. You should be checking not just that routing works, but is it the right route? Is the traffic going the right way? These used to be economic questions to ask back when bandwidth was hideously expensive, but now they're good security questions. Is that IP address trying to access our web server coming from the right place? Because you think about it, if you have everything in that world public square and you just don't care about who's connecting to your systems, you could be running a pretty huge risk by not verifying these origins, these route origins are actually correct. And if you've got a nice big worldwide database run by five of the internet registries that tell you that, okay, this is good or this is not good, I think it should be on your brief. I think that's the major impetus for the uptake is just to have that integrity there in what we call the BGP routing table. But that's only the start. We've got origins. Now we need pathways as well. And that's where ASPA will come in. I think when you're talking to Job, you're probably talking about BGPSEC. I don't think we'll get BGPSEC up and running. It's really a hard ask given what, what they want to do with BGPSEC. But these other ideas of AS cones and path validity, they make sense because you do have that relationship of IP address to ASN. Now, paths, you've got ASN to ASN. That means going in both directions, you can build a path and you can build origin and destination checks on what's happening with routing. That excites me because that means, hang on, we've actually can now actually build that BGP table and be assured it's actually correct and that no one's going to start fiddling with it or start hijacking routes for whatever reason they want to do. So to clarify, for some of our listeners, ASPA is AS Path Authorization. And as you've noted, is one of multiple solutions that the community is working on to solve the problem of routing security. On this point, it's worth reiterating what Job discussed in our previous episode that RPKI is a work in progress. And as more people start deploying it and finding areas that it doesn't necessarily suit their purposes, this is how it will be further developed. Now, Terry, I'd like to make a detour of sorts. Uh, Previously, you used to work for an internet exchange here in Australia. Given the unique local perspective that IXs have of the internet, I wanted to ask if you feel IXPs can play a greater role in data research related to the health of the internet. Well, one of the good things about IXPs in general is that they have a a central point where they're actually looking at what traffic is running through a common collision domain or LAN. And on top of that, they normally have root servers there, which also check what is being advertised to and fro. Now, I do know the guys at IX Australia have been running RPKI in their their bird root servers, which means they have been checking the validity of of routes. They also use um, AS sets and so on to build their route filters, which is great as well. So 
that's probably one way of doing it. That becomes a best practice of it. So you know what's going to be on the exchange and so on. Mind you, when we did this testing for this current project, we did notice that, unfortunately, you can still send any traffic you like over these networks, including IXPs. So it's one thing that you have the routing table and the routing entries good, but you can still spoof traffic. You can still send traffic in the wrong direction if you wish to, and it will still go across those exchanges without being checked because ultimately the exchanges are just a layer two construct. They're neutral ground, and essentially when it comes to a layer three connection, you don't have the exchange in that equation at all. You are normally talking directly to a border router attached to the exchange on the other AS, and the exchange unfortunately doesn't get a say in what traffic you actually send over it in that case. So that's one thing to be aware of. That's, that's one security aspect that came out in the report. But as far as vantage point is concerned for almost anything internet related, it really doesn't matter where the exchange is and who the exchange is because ultimately any given network, especially very large transit networks, have to be at multiple points of these locations. They have to be on IXPs around the world in order to get their job done. So when we talk about transit, we might be talking about private paid links from ISP to ISP to big NSP to big global transit provider. But even in that food chain, once you're up at the tier one, there's no longer transit going on. It's, okay, I have a peering connection, either a private peering link or I'm at an IXP and I'll exchange traffic with that network. But that network will have thousands or tens of thousands of networks behind it who are all in that transit contract arrangement behind that ASN. So everywhere that glue exists is either a PNI or an IXP. So yeah, they're the perfect place to do measurements, very much so. What you're referring to is traffic, isn't it? but I'm interested in what other metrics they can show us. Well, look, some of them do collect ASN to ASN traffic and they do monitor S-flow and whatever, but I think they're probably smart enough to keep some of that information to themselves. And that's something I would also encourage them to do because ultimately, if you want to do your own homework on your own flow studies, that's good. If you have your IXP doing it for you and then broadcasting that out, it's probably not the best situation to be in. I do know there are network operators out there who, hey, they don't want their graphs shown ever at the IXP level, and they would probably sue if you did. So you'd have to be very cautious with that. But that said, the hardware out there right now that's available, yeah, it can use flexible NetFlow or can use SFlow, produce great data, and that would be of great value. I'm not sure whether it would be ethical for the exchange point to publish it or use it in anything but for examining traffic, but at least you get a fair idea of what's happening. Because any, any network you run, if, if you're not putting the right metrics on it and you're not monitoring it in the right way, you're asking for unknown unknowns to hit you at some stage. But like everyone who runs a network, you've got to have metrics and having the graphs as well, as I said, good bragging rights if you're turning over lots of traffic. Indeed. So maybe these additional member metrics could be added incentive to join. Uh, To bring this back to the topic of our conversation, are IXPs helping to develop awareness of RPKI? If not, how can they? We do actually have a good example of that with IX Australia. The more often uh, internet exchange points deploy ROV, the better. That way we have a great idea. But one thing I'd love to see in future is if there are IXPs out there willing to actually also conduct routing security as well. The idea that 
if they're going to let traffic transit their peering point, they make sure it is the right traffic and the traffic is going to destinations in two directions, making sure it's valid traffic from the address space that their customers actually own as opposed to being either spoofed or hijacked. Because it'd be one thing to accidentally have your transit provider leak routes, but if you did that at a major exchange point to everyone on the exchange point, and they didn't have filtering at the exchange point, that just multiplies the issue by how many participants on the exchange point plus one. It blows things up in a much more grander scale when you, you're not doing it to one transit provider, but you're doing it to 50 or 100 peers. Even more. I mean, if you're talking about worldwide IXs like DECX or Links, then that could be thousands. Yeah, well, that's right. That's right. Some of those major exchanges are, are massive. I think one of the ones in Indonesia is a thousand peers, from what I've been told. So yeah, it, it's scary. You get you get it wrong in those situations. It's a lot of the collateral damage. You're not wrong, Terry. And yet, it's organisations looking after such massive networks that are playing leading roles in deploying RPKI, and which we have to thank for all the troubleshooting they've done so far to make it more and more user friendly. Thanks so much for joining us today to continue our discussion on RPKI, Terry. While this study is niche, it provides some important results and hopefully can be replicated in other economies too, which I'm sure the Internet Society will be interested in partnering with. Well, I don't want to preempt them, but yeah, if they want me to do more work, I'm happy to do it. I just I like doing these projects. It's good because you get to look at the absolute nuts and bolts of what's going on. It's something you normally don't do as a network engineer unless you're working for a very large telco and they want to know exactly what's going on. And even then, I normally attach an ROI to it and you don't get to really do the work anyway. But when you're speculating like this and you get a budget to work with as well to do it. It's great fun and it adds to the body of knowledge out there for the, uh, the community as well. Indeed. Thanks again, Terry. No worries, Robbie. Thank you, mate. And thanks to everyone who made it this far. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If so, please subscribe, write a review and tell your colleagues about it. If you'd like to learn more about RPKI, check out the link in the show description to our RPKI at APNIC portal, which has links to useful deployment case studies and how-to articles, as well as hands-on tutorials and labs to help you practice configuring and deploying it. Also, check out our past episode with Job Stiders. Finally, if you've got a story or research to share, get in contact via email, ping at apnic.net or our APNIC social media channels. And be sure to check out the Apenic website for all your resource and community needs. Until next time.